Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today I have a really exciting guest. He's wrote this fantastic book that has just come out. I love it. It's called Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints in the American Apocalypse. I am talking with Dr. Christopher James Blythe. And Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Daniel. I'm excited to be with you. Oh yeah, I'm I'm pumped to have you on. This book is fantastic. It's published by Oxford, so automatically it's got a gold star because it's published by Oxford. Oxford publishes amazing books. But Chris's book is a real refreshing book about Latter-day Saint millennialism. And he goes into a lot. He goes he goes far all the way to the turn of the 20th century. So it's a fantastic book. So I mean, Chris, thank you for writing it. I really enjoyed reading it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So just to kind of start us off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm sure. So right now I work for the Maxwell Institute um, for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. So I have this position where I really just get to research and write. Um, you know, a little my background, I have a PhD in American Religious History from Florida State University. And before that, I, I received a master's degree in history at um, Utah State University. Um, and before that, I received an anthropology degree at Texas A&M. Um, so I've been around a few different universities, and I actually got a second bachelor's degree from Utah State as well in religion. Um, yeah, I'm a military brat. I've a uh, lived around the world, and uh, I have always been fascinated by religion. Awesome. So did you get like a fascination with religion because you lived all around the world? Um, you know, I think that's probably right. I uh, I lived in Korea when I was 10, and I remember going to Buddhist temples there. And um, when we lived in Hawaii, I remember hearing different stories about Pele and other interesting figures from Hawaiian mythology. And um, yeah, I think I was always uh, intrigued by new ideas in religion. And I was also intrigued um, by my my own religion. I, I grew up a Protestant and Episcopalian. And uh, as I moved to new areas, I had lots of time. You know, you go through these uh, couple month gaps where you don't know a lot of people in your new areas. And I would read a lot. And so from a young age, I I uh, I got interested in religion books. So, uh, yeah, I've been interested in these things for a long time. Awesome. So that's really interesting, Chris. So how did you get interested in Mormon history? Because you said you grew up Protestant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I converted to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was a little bit before my 14th birthday. Um, I was the only member of my family. Um, but something interesting happened shortly after that conversion. My grandpa came over and he said to me, you know what? You actually have family members who are Mormon. And I said, really? 
and he drove me out. We lived in Virginia, but he took me on a trip to Jackson County, Missouri. In Jackson County, obviously, there's a lots of different Latter-day Saint denominations. And he brought me to meet his aunt, a woman named Pearl Wilcox. And Pearl Wilcox was um, a very well-known church historian of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and so he brought me in, and this woman who was in a care center at the time uh, sat me down by her bed, and she just talked about being a historian. Um, and she brought out a, a, a little shoebox underneath her bed, and she showed me how, you know, this is a very different style of history than we do, but she showed me an assortment of uh, clippings that she had gotten from the newspaper and uh, about, you know, Mormonism in general and so on. She had written about eight books already at this point, but she was already working on other things. And um, I was really, I thought this was the coolest thing ever. Um, and so I, uh, I would pinpoint my interest in Mormon history, um, at least th this sort of actually doing Mormon history, not just reading it, um, to that conversation with this great aunt um, who was, you know, the one other Mormon in my family. Um, a couple years after my conversion, my father took me on a work trip to Salt Lake. And I was probably 16 years old then. Um, in Salt Lake, I went to Sam Weller's books. Um, and in Sam Weller's, this independent bookstore in Salt Lake, they had... Uh, you know, every sort of Mormon history book you could imagine. And on this trip, you know, I got introduced to uh, signature books and, uh, you know, D. Michael Quinn and Thomas Alexander and all these great historians because um, I could pick up cheap versions of their books in the store. You know, I, I spent uh, $200 on books that I brought back with me. Um, and I think that's really what kicked me off into thinking about, you know, maybe this is something I wanted to do, even though I didn't think, you know, people had a career or anything like that in Mormon studies or Mormon history. But I thought, you know, maybe I want to write, maybe I want to study this stuff as at least as a hobby, as a thing I did. That's awesome. Yeah. Now you are doing it for a career, which is fantastic. Yeah. That's great. So how did you get the book idea? So that, you know, did you like start reading about Mormon millennialism or, you know, what drove you to, you know, focus on like end time prophecy within the Latter-day Saint movement. Oh, I, you know, I think I've always been interested in how people interpret the book of revelation, how people think about the last days and, you know, not to be too anecdotal about myself in this interview, but um, you know, I thought I, I was born in 1981. And so in the 1980s, I sometimes learned about different beliefs about the apocalypse. And so, it's always been an idea that's fascinated me, um, but also I taught a book and a course um, called Why Waco, this fantastic book on David Koresh. And uh, I'm not comparing Mormons to Branch Davidians, but uh, I loved this book because it focused on how a prophet figure, David Koresh, would interpret the Bible for his people and how... Um, his relationship with the state, with the FBI and the ATF and these things affected how he saw these events occurring on the land, on, on the ground around him. 
And so that got me thinking about how that worked for Latter-day Saints. And, you know, obviously the, the church itself is named the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so there's a last days minded um, perspective. Um, and so I was interested in that question. There were other books written about it. Um, and what I realized is the thing that I really was most interested in was not how church leaders thought about the apocalypse, um, but really how regular people like me or neighbors or, um, you know, those that take it very seriously and those that take it less seriously, how are they doing that and where do they talk about it and, and so on. And I wanted to answer those questions in this book. Yeah. I think one of the, the one of the most favorite things I like about your book is that how it incorporates uh, the stories of the laity and how just you're getting it's not a top down approach. I, you do talk about the top down, but you also talk about the bottom up. It's all encompassing, and that is something I, I very rarely do you see, especially with this topic. So what you've done is is really special. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think it's uh, we need to have more of a sort of lived religion approach to to Mormon studies. And so I was hoping that I could pull from that. And of course, you know, there've been some good Latter-day Saint scholars that have tried that, but really when I discovered folklorists of religion, I thought here's this wonderful methodology that really just hasn't been integrated into the study of, of Mormon history. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you mentioned this in your book, and I really liked the term catastrophic millennialism. And I thought it really kind of, and you even talked about it at the beginning of your book, how it really kind of uh, describes the approach that you're taking and how you're talking about the Latter-day Latter Saint history with a focus on millennialism. So what is catastrophic millennialism and how did this fit within early Latter-day Saint belief? Yeah, you know, the term itself isn't that different than millenarianism you know this is the idea that um the world's divided between the righteous and the wicked um there's a very dualistic mindset of how the world's organized usually the bad guys the wicked are in, are oppressing the righteous and they're also the power structure and so in catastrophic millennialism it's a it's a story a prophecy of how that oppressed minority um, of the righteous will rise to power through um, catastrophe, through natural disasters or wars or um, civil unrest, disease, and so on, um, and how, how they're passing through this major event that's going to lead to a better world um, for everyone. Of course, the wicked are going to be punished. Um, and I, you know, the reason I wanted to talk about catastrophic millennialism and use this term that a great scholar, Catherine Wessinger, came up with, she coined catastrophic millennialism, um, is that so much of the conversation on Mormon last day's belief has always been a comparison to what Protestants thought about the last days. And so the wrestle is, are Mormons, you know, post-millennialists or pre-millennialists, or are they amillennialists, so on? Um, and I just wanted to say, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want to worry about that sort of comparison, that sort of theological conversation. I just wanted to see how it played out in Latter-day Saint imaginations. And the most important thing for them was uh, that, yeah, these events were going to happen that was going to create 
a space for them to move in and and uh, help the world, really. Um, and it would come to that that moment of disasters, and which would pave the way for them to step in. Yeah, brilliant stuff. So before we kind of jump into the book more and kind of like what you in what you studied, you know, we we talked about how you kind of focus on the laity and the, their beliefs, and you even talk about their revelations. And it seems like you used a lot of resources that people had never really unturned before, and you you really dug into them. So that was really interesting. And you talked about why you did this, but can you tell us a little bit more? And what did it reveal in your study? Like, what did you learn by doing that? Yeah, I, you know, what I think, I, you know, the, the basic reason why I did is because I think those lay voices are really potentially more important than sort of official voices. Um, you know, I'm interested... I think they're more important than the sort of official statements or like major sermons from prophets. Um, I'm interested in what people say in their homes or what they say to their friends and even what prophets might write in their diaries, but not say over the pulpit. And I think that tells us more about uh, really what the experience is about. There's always any public statement has a sort of uh, PR purpose behind it, right? For any institution. And so by trying to get to the ground and look at the laity, um, you're able to see how these things are actually being digested and interpreted and, you know, enacted and lived experience. And that's awesome. When I think about what it revealed, I really wanted to see, um, I wanted to see what the relationship between, you know, Mormonism is a very organized religion. And so there's a lot of focus on what is legitimate. What's the real version of this tradition? And I I came to think, as I was studying this, that really one of the major things that church leaders and church statements did was not only introduce new ideas, but actually regulate how people express their religion. And sometimes, uh, you know, in this case, they would say, uh, share your dreams, share your visions. Uh, you know, it's not controversial to share a prophecy that you might have. Um, and they did that at moments where it was useful. You know, um, I talk in the book about how apocalypticism was this group project. Everybody was cooperating in it so long as Utah was a territory and people were, you know, this, the residents of Utah territory were in conflict with the federal government. Well, in those cases, apocalypticism worked really well. And so people were encouraged. But then after the statehood of Utah, um, I found that church leaders spoke up and it's not that we all of a sudden, you know, prophecy or these claims to revelation dried up. It was that church leaders began to regulate them and say, Hey, don't share those widely. Don't preach them over the pulpit. Um, We're no longer going to publish them in newspapers and so on. So I think that that relationship between lay Latter-day Saints and the organization is a lot more complex than I thought about, thought about it previously before I wrote the book. Yeah, this is brilliant stuff. So now that you kind of touched on it, what did Mormon millennialism, excuse me, Mormon millennialism look like under the leadership of Joseph Smith? So let's just get starting from the beginning. Like when Joseph Smith was alive, when he was leading the church, what did it look like? Great. Um, you know, Joseph Smith, I mean, from, from the foundations of this, 
this uh, story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, millennialism is ever-present and it's pervasive. And so I, I think it's fascinating that, and I decided to open the book with this story, that Joseph Smith's, you know, second religious experience, the the idea, well, second vision that he'll tell people about is an angel showing up in his bedroom. And often this was the first experience he really told people about. An angel shows up in his bedroom, Moroni, and throughout the night, this angel not only tells him about the gold plates that will become the Book of Mormon, but he appears in his bedroom and reads to him apocalyptic verses from the Bible, from Isaiah and Ezekiel and so forth. Um, and then he interprets it for Joseph. And so from the very beginning, this story of apocalypticism and God's um, interpretation of old passage of apocalyptic scripture to a new world became really the story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what it is. When I think of apocalypticism during the lifetime of Joseph Smith, I think people are um, taking a story that they previously thought was going to occur in the old world, you know, the story of Jerusalem and the Battle of Armageddon that'll take place there. And now all of that material, Latter-day Saints certainly didn't forget about Israel and the old world, but most of those prophecies become centered in the United States. Um, under Joseph Smith, people were often, um, you know, prophecy was a major subject, but he was active in discouraging um, public speculation about sort of symbols in the book of Revelation and Daniel. Um, he would also discourage, um, there's a great letter, and I think it's 1833, where uh, he discouraged people from talking about prophecies in the Book of Mormon, specifically prophecies that predicted um, Native American raids on white settlements. Um, this is all over the Book of Mormon. This is a, an orthodox idea. But Joseph says, if you promote this idea, it's going to enrage our, our neighbors, right? This is going to be controversial. Um, and so he is regulating ideas, um, but for the most part, he's encouraging it. So privately, uh, in meetings during Joseph Smith's lifetime, individuals could share their expectations of, of the last days, and Joseph Smith would be willing to speculate with them. Um, I think it's pretty fascinating. You know, one famous case, Joseph Smith, um, defended a man who uh, had interpreted um, the book of Daniel in a way that people didn't like. Well, it was actually a relationship between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation about the the four beasts. And uh, he'd actually been, he'd gotten in trouble with a church court. And so Joseph Smith stood up and said, the guy's name was Pelatiah Brown. And he said that this guy uh, had the rights to share, you know, it's, it, it's, he, uh, you know, he said uh, it struck him too much like Methodism for Politiah Brown to be told what he could teach or how he could speculate on these ideas. Um, so I thought that's interesting. You know, Joseph's very open to uh, speculation as it relates to the apocalypse. But this is an important conversation um, that Latter-day Saints are having, of course. During interesting. So you so it seems like there was even though Joseph was leading the church and he's having these revelations and he's kind of leading kind of like this apocalyptic mentality there seems to be a discussion with just the average church member as well. Absolutely. Um you know I I think 
There's a there's just an assortment when you get into these diaries and letters church members wrote to their relatives. You know the major the major we think when we think of early Mormonism we might think polygamy or communal living or, or some of these ideas as sort of the the defining feature. But really, the defining feature in my reading of early Mormonism is the idea of the gathering. Early Latter Day Saints are meeting missionaries. And those missionaries are telling them that they need to give up their jobs, maybe their families, certainly their lives, and, you know, in the language of some of these revelations, to flee to where the saints are trying to build Zion. And the idea is that uh, there they can be protected from these last day's events that are imminent. Um, If you're in London, well, you need to get to Nauvoo, Illinois, or maybe you need to get to Salt Lake City, Utah, depending on the era. Um, and it's all with an idea that these things are about to happen. And so um, beliefs on the apocalypse aren't per- periphery to those ideas at all. They are the center, the, really the central experience and, and interpretive lens that Latter-day Saints have. And so they're they're having dreams about it, which they're sharing with one another. They're um, claim, telling stories of visions. Missionaries are giving prophecies of... Um, what what's going to happen to various places in the world? I mean, this is a big event. The whole church is participating in it. Huh. Very interesting. So it must have been a shock went to them, especially to the laity when Joseph Smith dies. How does that affect Mormon millennialism from that point forward? Does it change or alter in any way? Yeah, I think um, Joseph Smith's death becomes a sort of centerpiece of of last day's events um the great scholar sam brown who i think you've had on the show before um said that joseph smith was recognized as the sort of last martyr um great insight that he had there and so what i tried to do um was really take that home and see what does that mean that he was the last martyr and of course that means um that things are about to go crazy right there's this uh early latter-day saints have an idea about martyrology that you can find in the, in the Bible, but also emphasize in the Book of Mormon, that the killing of the prophets are really this last event that makes it so you know destructions are about to follow, um, that this, this society is doomed at this point. And so Latter-day Saints did. They, you know, one of, one of the things I, I discovered was that many of them believed there was a conspiracy relating to the death of Joseph Smith, that um, people in power had desired for this to occur. Um, and it's expressed, you know, the, the conspiracy is expressed in different ways. Maybe it was the Masons, maybe it was political. Um, but the key was that Joseph Smith's death represented this final chance for the American nation. And so the key here, um, when Latter-day Saints, um, followers of Brigham Young, at least left the nation, they were literally thinking they need to get out of the nation, um, that it wasn't safe there anymore. This nation had its chance And now it was going to go down. Very interesting. So another thing I really liked about your book was that how you talk about how at the turn of the 20th century, you know, when the church gets rid of polygamy and all these other things, you really start to see a change in the millennial views of the church. And I, I thought this was a really fascinating part of your book that I feel like a lot of other scholars don't fully get into. And you did, and you especially, and you have that aspect of talking about the laity. So what kind of transitions once you get into the 20th century? Yeah, you know, 
the key when we think about 19th century apocalypticism among Latter-day Saints is that, um, I mean, it was against the nation. It was predicting the nation's downfall um, and often focused on political messianism. Latter-day Saints were going to preserve the Constitution, um, preserve this sort of original American ideals and the nation had become too corrupt for that. Um, well, how, how does that look once you obtain statehood, once you think of yourself as an American again? And so what you find is that um, the official rhetoric on the apocalypse is no longer against the nation. The, even for a time, the nation's almost, the United States, is presented as if it was Zion. You know, prophecies that were previously um employed to discuss the Latter-day Saint people are now used, are, are deployed to speak of the nation, um, which is very fascinating, I think, and leads to, it's helpful to Latter-day Saints to, to build up that patriotism um, that they would need to become 20 and 20th, first century um, Americans. Um, of course, while church leaders are able to make this change pretty quickly. And they, they retake these prophecies, you know, how are Latter-day Saints going to become, uh, how are they going to help with the constitution and other things? Um, well, they're going to do it because they're going to become politicians and they're going to become voters and so forth. Um, but many members of the laity, um, didn't just buy into a change of rhetoric. This has been a hundred years of prophecy and, um, expectations. And so, this meant that church leaders needed to police those ideas. Um, I actually argue in the book that there was a series of statements um, where the church pinpointed ideas about prophecy and tried to slowly correct them. Um, you know, one of the things the church first dealt with is the idea of messianism, the idea that there would become some sort of great prophetic figure that would emerge um, among the church laity that would lead people back to Jackson County or would, uh, you know, there's one prophecy that says one mighty and strong will set the the house of God in order. Um, and these prophecies were used to predict this sort of, uh, you know, that the church was going to be, that maybe the church was uh, uh, lacking and that these leaders would emerge to, to save the day. Um, and so in 1905, church leaders issued a statement to critique that idea. In 1913, another statement was issued that um, corrected when people should share visions and prophecies and revelations and so on. Um, and this was, an, you know, the idea that a Latter-day Saint shouldn't share their own visions or revelations as um, authoritative for everyone dates back to 1830. I mean, Joseph Smith introduced that idea. If your visions and prophecies and so on were were really along the lines of what the church is teaching, there's no controversy in sharing those things, though, earlier in the 19th century. In the 20th century, now it's encouraged to keep these ideas to yourself. Um, and I think that's interesting. And then in 1918, there's a church conference that disavows a prophecy called the white horse prophecy and the white horse prophecy was, it was a document put together in 1902, um, a memory of, or at least an alleged memory 
from a man named Edwin Rushton. But what he did in that prophecy was he put together really all sorts of different quotes. We know that Joseph Smith really did say and put them together in one document. Um, some of it is not controversial at all. Um, you know, it predicts a foreign invasion in the future, it predicts Indian uprisings, it predicts uh, civil unrest, race war, all these things are in the Book of Mormon and other revelations from Joseph Smith. Um, but it was a prophecy that didn't come from church leadership. Um, and so I argue that 1918, when the prophet and an apostle gave two sermons against this prophecy, what they were really doing was trying to correct some of those uh, particularly anti-American ideas that were being perpetrated amongst the laity and uh, perpetuated among the laity. Um, and so that's really where I see that major change. Now Latter-day Saints see themselves as good Americans, and gradually we begin to see some of the events um, that they'd expected for so many years to become de-emphasized and other events emphasized. So now in the 20th century, people might emphasize events in the old world, such as Israel. Um, that's a minor thread of 19th century apocalypticism, but a major one in the 20th century. Yeah, this is fascinating stuff, Chris. Yeah, because I do remember uh, J.B. Haas's book that was published by Oxford, too. It was uh, the I think it was called The Mormon Image in the American Mind. He talks about how the Mormon image, especially during the 20th century, was evolving. And I, what I loved about your book was you really start to see in your, your argument is, is that beginning of the 20th century, you really do start to see that the, the that uh, that this idea of this Mormon image, they're becoming more American. You know, they were outside of the U.S. for a while. They were having this contest with the United States government. But over time, they're now coming back into it. And your book is focusing on it from an apocalyptic standpoint, which was fascinating and to read. And I learned a ton by reading that. Oh, thanks. I think that's right. There's uh, there's multiple things taking place. And so I think at some levels you see these major changes and, you know, and, and how people are expecting prophecy to happen. And then on another level, um, I think there's elements of the Latter-day Saint tradition that just become private. That if you have a dream or a vision or expectations of the last days, well, you, you speculation, you don't bring that to a church meeting. You don't talk about it openly, um, but you might share it with your friends, your family. Um, you might even share it online. Um, and I think that's a, another important thing that happens in the 20th century. And it's really related on how an emphasis on image um, created that need to regulate how Latter-day Saints present themselves. Brilliant. So, you know, your book now is a part of the, a part of the apocalyptic canon for Mormonism. And, you know, Grant Underwood's book is in there. Dan Erickson's book is in there. So now yours is the new one. So, and how does your book add to the discussion of Mormon millennialism? And also, what did you like about Underwood's and Erickson's books? Oh, I, I love Grant. You know, Grant Underwood did not love Erickson's book, but I actually think both of them are are wonderful volumes. You know, Grant Underwood just has these great insights. You know, one of his, his best insight is, uh, so he's writing in the 1990s, and he has a, a goal um, that a lot of Latter-day Saint scholars had in that era, and even Latter-day Saint studies scholars, which was to answer the question of how Christian Mormons are. Um, 
And so one of the things he's arguing uh, is how this sort of millennial ideas relate to Protestant theology. Um, and I, w- I don't think many people would write that today, but I think uh, it, it provides some great insights that wouldn't be possible otherwise. One of the things, his insights is, um, is about the rapture. You know, Grant Underwood points out that Mormons don't believe in the rapture. However, that this idea of the gathering, that people would flock to an area and be protected there, um, functions the same as the rapture does in evangelicalism. I think this insight is, I mean, this is brilliant. Um, And so it's something I draw on many times in my work. Grant also develops an idea that was very important to me, which he says that when we write about Mormon ideas in the past, we shouldn't focus on scripture before, before his era, people were discussing Mormon belief and they were quoting the book of Mormon. And he said, well, that that doesn't mean anything. These scriptures are interpreted different ways. So what you need to do is study the interpreters. And so his book really uses people like Parley P. Pratt and Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt, these early Mormon apostles that were so influential. Um, And so what, I wanted to do, I think that's such an important insight that you need to get to the interpretation. And that really paved the way to my contribution, which was to say, let's focus on interpretation, not through these elites, but let's take it to the ground as close as we can get it and kind of think how the elites played into that. Um, His book ends in 1844. um, So with Joseph's death, and then kind of gives the last chapter that takes us to the present. And I wanted to do a book that really started us. My first chapter covers uh, his his book, right? I mean, it's certainly not as thorough as his book, but it covers that time period. And then the rest of it moves through the next 200 years. Um, Dan Erickson, his great book, um, is, you know, it's, it's not treated like the classic that Underwood's is, but it, um, it really moves forward the idea Grant wanted to argue that there was that Mormon millenarianism was moderate, that it wasn't this radical idea. Um, Well, I don't think that's true. I think it's completely a political radicalism. And I mean, it led these people to separate themselves from the nation. So I think it's pretty radical. And Dan Erickson brings out that idea. He, he talks about, uh, let's call it uh, apocalyptic separatism. Um, And he takes us up into the late 1800s, really focusing on um, the 1880s and the 1890s. Um, I I think it's a really important book. There's one thing that I think Dan Erickson does, um, which isn't as useful um, as it could have been. He, uh, he's, he was very excited to dig into what he calls the failed prophecy of 1890. You know, all these expectations that 1890 was going to be the year. Um, But when I got to the sources, I found that this wasn't really this huge event. 1890 passed and it affected all these members. It kind of passed like most failed prophecy in religion, that people just came up with new interpretations. And really, in this case, church leaders responded before 1890 to say they didn't think 1890 was going to be the year. And so even at that general conference, you don't really find any major supporters of the idea that Jesus is going to come in 1890, like Dan Erickson would would suggest in his work. So anyways, I love the books. They got 
great things about them. And I'm, I can't wait till I get to see a bookshelf with my book sitting next to theirs. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's happening in every library now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this wonderful book written by Chris, Dr. Christopher James Blythe is called Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's hot off the press. It just came out. It's an awesome book. Really love it. And Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. So before you go and leave us, what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from you in the future? You know, uh, we were just talking about this before the show, a, a book, an anthology of different essays written about Latter-day Saint scripture was just accepted by the University of Utah Press. So it's called Open Canon Scriptures of the Latter-day Saint Diaspora. The host of this show, Daniel Stone, has a great essay in it. Um, and Thanks. the scholars are taking a different uh, scripture and a different Latter-day Saint tradition as they, uh, as they, um, you know, we think of the Latter-day Saint canon as the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Bible, and some traditions have, have different variants of that. Um, but there's actually dozens of different Latter-day Saint scriptures that have been produced over the past 200 years. And so I'm excited. This book is going to bring more attention to that. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be looking forward to seeing that. And thanks again, Chris, for being on. Again, I just want to reiterate, Chris's book is called Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse. You definitely need to get it and you definitely need to read it. So Chris, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. I really appreciate your support. <laughs>